Good afternoon. Um, thanks, guys. Amazing day so far. And uh, we are in this habit series, and I've absolutely loved the habit series. My name is Todd Peterson. Uh, if you don't know me, my wife Susan and I and our two children, Hannah and Zach, have been a part of PCC since day one, one of the great, great privileges of our life. Uh, I have the privilege of serving on the board of Passion and Passion City Church, and really am honored to be here with you today. Uh, my wife would tell me I have good habits and bad habits. Um, one of the bad habits is Doritos at midnight. I kind of think it's a good habit as it's happening. Um, they're tasty. But um, this habit series really redefines the way we think about some things. And I love the idea of memorizing Scripture. Uh, reading the Scripture and memorizing it. That's a life-changing habit that I have implemented for a couple decades. And it really is truly uh, a lot of the reason I believe I am the way I am. I love the idea of fasting. Doritos at midnight is not a good example of that. It's a challenge. It's a spiritual discipline that really is a challenge for me. But I love the idea of it. And I love the way um, Louie talked about the idea of giving something up so it drives us toward God. Uh, I love what Aaron shared last week. If you weren't with us, one of the great messages in our house, I loved what Aaron Coe said last week about the idea that practice doesn't make us perfect. Practicing godly virtues give us peace, regardless of our circumstances. Uh, he shared about how his wife Carmen uh, found herself on her knees in their backyard with a gun to her head a few months ago. And he was looking out the window of their house, and he was thinking, what in the world, as a husband, do you do right now? And in that moment, because Aaron and Carmen have practiced godly virtues like the Scripture talks about, they've dwelled on noble and pure and beautiful and right and excellent and praiseworthy things. They've kept their eyes set on Christ. Because in that moment, regardless of the circumstance of that moment, they had practiced godly virtue. They had peace that surpassed understanding. This habit series has been awesome, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm up here today because I think that I have um, been habitual in some ways. Uh, I had the privilege of playing in the NFL from 1993 to 2006, and I happened, as it was the case with my job, to have to, to make good habits out of certain things. I had to practice doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And that really, I believe, is what life is about. A couple weeks ago, we had the Super Bowl. I don't know if anybody watched the Super Bowl. We're down here in the football capital of the world. Um, I believe it's the football capital of the world. Texas would argue with us and Ohio would argue with us, but come on, it's Georgia. And um, we were out at the Super Bowl. I took my daughter out there a couple weeks ago and um, it was an amazing game, and it was exactly what they say about Super Bowls. Defense wins championships. Well, I got to kick a football for a living for 13 years, and I think back to when I was young and what my dad shared with me about life. My dad was a great man, and he said, life is about choices. Maybe some of the best advice I've ever been given. And in light of this habit series, I really believe life is about habits. Choices and habits kind of work together, don't they? Habits are built on choices. We make a choice over and over and over and over again, and before you know it, we have a habit. 
Good and bad habits are born from choices. Eating Doritos every night at midnight creates a bad habit. But there are also things we can do to create good habits in our lives, and that's really what this message series has been about. The big idea for today is that there can be a habit of generosity in our lives. There can be a habit of giving in our lives. I love what Kenny shared. In fact, the whole time I'm thinking, Kenny, we need you to be speaking to us right now. Um, Maybe we ought to just have you do an expanded message because that was all about what I want to share, the habit of generosity, the habit of great giving. And that comes about because we make a choice. We choose over and over and over and over again to prioritize around the idea, our time, our talent, our treasure, this idea that God has called us into extravagant, stunning generosity. That's what we want our church to be, isn't it? Stunningly generous. We want people to say, man, those PCC people, those Passion City church people, they're crazy. I mean, they give you everything they got. Well, that's what it says, says in the scripture about the Macedonian church. They gave in such a way it stunned the world. They gave out of what they didn't even have. Think about that. They gave what they didn't even have. That's stunning generosity. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians 8. And I think Paul really gives us a little bit of a summary about the habit of giving. It says, But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. See that you excel in this grace of giving. Well, I think about in my life, that kind of poses a question for me. I think about in my life, how is it that I have excelled at the things I've excelled at? And the answer for me is it goes back over and over and over and over and over again to practice. I am legendary in my home for making the best homemade popcorn on earth. Very few people have had the privilege of having my popcorn other than my family. But you know, I got good at making popcorn. I burned it about 812 times. The same way that I practiced making homemade popcorn, old-fashioned style, like pouring the oil in, putting the kernels down in there, and only having it heat for so long, practice is the same way I became a good NFL kicker. It's the same way I got to the NFL. I look all the way back to high school, I look at my high school days, my college days, my NFL career, from like 1983 to 2006, it's all about practice. And I think what Paul is saying here is he's calling us to the practice of giving, developing a habit of giving by choosing over and over and over and over again to say our life is not our own. God, here am I, send me. Use me, God. You've given me more than I need. How can I steward this for your glory? You know, I mentioned briefly that Aaron shared last week the idea that practice doesn't make us perfect. It makes us peaceful. And here's the deal. Generosity doesn't just happen because we want it to. It happens because we practice it. Um, Why is it that Carmen, on her knees in her backyard with a gun to her head, could have peace 
It's because she had practiced godly virtues. When I look at my career, I think about the number of footballs I have kicked. People oftentimes ask me, how many balls did you kick? And I had to kind of do a little math, because honestly, you don't keep track of them. I didn't really keep track of the 812 times I burned my popcorn. But the reality is that I could do a little bit of math, and I could figure out that from the time like I was 13, 14, and I started to kind of be intrigued by this whole notion that you could kick a ball through two posts, until I retired when I was turning 37, my guess is that I kicked probably about 400,000 balls. There's a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. Some of you may have heard of Malcolm Gladwell, read some of his stuff. He's a brilliant, brilliant writer, a brilliant thinker. And Malcolm wrote a book called Outliers. And in that book, he speaks of a 10,000-hour rule. And what he says in that book is really that when you've done something for 10,000 hours, you're kind of an expert at it. You're kind of the best at it. And when I look at those 400,000 balls and those 23, 24 years, there's no doubt in my mind I kicked for more than 10,000 hours. Interestingly enough, the guy that Malcolm Gladwell studied to kind of talk about and popularize this idea, the 10,000-hour rule, was a Swedish psychologist who works at FSU, and his name is Anders Ericsson. And Dr. Ericsson really came up with this conclusion when he researched and studied the idea of deliberate practice. And he did it in the context of expert performance. He actually did it in the case of musical instruments. People who are phenomenally good at playing a musical instrument. Well, I really believe I'm living proof of the fact that if you practice something long enough, you become good at it. God gave me a talent, there's no doubt about that. But there were a lot of guys that I kicked against in the NFL who had more talent than me, and I had no business competing with them. And I really believe that God honors the habit of practicing things. And that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about the habit of giving, the habit of generosity. Practicing, like Kenny said, great giving. Aaron Coe, last week, and I'm telling you, y'all got to go back and hear that message if you didn't hear it, talked about Michael Jordan. Any MJ fans in here? Any Air Jordan fans? How long has he been retired? A while. And we still got people who are clapping for the guy. He's like the greatest basketball player to ever walk the face of the earth. He got the best nickname ever, you know, Air Jordan. His airness is what they refer to him as. Well, why was it that Michael Jordan was so good? He was so good because he practiced. That's what Aaron said. He practiced endlessly. There's a video clip of him that said, it was him saying, I got into the game and practice had prepared me for the game. You know, here's what he did. He practiced squaring up to the basket before he shot. He practiced keeping his elbow tight to his body. Because to be a great shooter... You don't want your elbow out here. You want it tight to your body. He practiced finishing his shot, following through. Even when somebody was playing tenacious defense against him, adverse circumstances, challenging circumstances, fatigue, he did it in practice. 
over and over and over and over and over again. He did it the right way. And practice might not make us perfect, but what Paul says is this. It can make us excellent. We can excel in the grace of giving the same way Michael Jordan excelled on the basketball court and the same way that God allowed me the privilege of kicking a football in the NFL. Practice made me excellent. For me, it was a little bit different than Michael. Granted, Michael's taller than me. There's no doubt about it. And he can jump higher than me. There's no doubt about that. Some of you were a little tricked when you saw me walk up here because you thought Louie had shrunk and maybe he had put some hair color in. But here's the deal. Here's how it worked for me. I had to have a habit. I had to create a good habit. In fact, as an athlete, what we're trying to do is we're trying to create what's called muscle memory. We're doing the same thing the same way over and over and over and over again so that our bodies almost become like robotic. They just do it right regardless of the variables tossed at them. So for me, I had to pick a target line. You see the posts, but you're taught early on in your kicking career, you're not looking at the posts. You're looking beyond the posts. You're looking, for me, in the NFL, usually at somewhere up in the stands where there was a sign that said Coca-Cola, or it said some restaurant name, or it said something, and I was zeroing in on a letter based on the angle that I was approaching the post from, and that was my target line. And every single time I did that for hundreds of thousands of kicks, the first thing I did was I picked my target. My eyes had to see where I wanted the ball to go. Then I took three steps back, and I took two steps over. And those steps, you could measure them, and they were exactly the same every time. So that I was always approaching the ball from the exact same distance, which enabled my plant foot, my non-kicking foot, to go into the ground at the very right spot in relationship to where the ball was going to be put down by my holder after he'd caught the snap. Now, an aside to that is those guys were creating a good habit too because our snapper was making sure he was snapping the ball back there as best he possibly could with the laces out of the way. Nobody wanted to be Ray Finkel. And my holder was trying to hit like a spot on the ground that was invisible, and it was this big, and if he didn't hit it, we were dead. And so after I'd taken my steps to the ball and planted, then I was striking the ball on the right part of the ball with the right part of my foot. And if I didn't hit the ball on the right part of the ball with the right part of my foot, we were dead. And then I was finishing square to my target. And the same way that Michael practiced shooting a ball, or the same way the people Dr. Erickson studied who were musicians practiced playing their instrument, I kicked balls for thousands upon thousands of hours. I remember my dad getting up before work to take me to kick and coming home early from work to take me to kick. Not because he wanted me to be a kicker, but because I said, Dad, would you help me become the best kicker I could be? I think this way is how God wants us to practice our giving. I think the Lord wants us to be excellent givers. 
I want to tell you briefly a story about a man who I'm astounded by. We have a picture of him. His name is Albert Lexi. Albert is a guy who shines shoes in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He shined them for 30 plus years. This is Albert Lexi. More than three decades of shining shoes. Think of the habits that get created in 30 plus years of shining shoes. Anybody ever get their shoes shined at the airport? In a hotel? Maybe you shine your own. I've done that. Man, you got a system, a routine. 30 years of shining shoes, three plus decades. And you know what is really astounding about Albert? What connects with this message about giving? That Albert, day one, decided more than three decades ago that he was going to charge five bucks for a shoe shine and that everything people gave him over and above the five bucks was going to be given away. So his tips, the, the sixth dollar or the seventh dollar or the 50th cent over five bucks, the five bucks over the five dollars, didn't matter what he was given. But every, everything above the five dollars he was going to give. And where he gave it was right where he shined the shoes. He had a couple other spots in Pittsburgh he'd go to shine, but he hung out mostly at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. And when Paul talks about excelling in the grace of giving, and when the Scriptures talk about the joy we should experience in our giving, the Scripture says God loves a cheerful giver. What you know from Albert is this, that over three-plus decades, a guy who shines shoes for a living was able to give children's hospitals free care fund so that no child would not receive the medical services they needed, regardless of their ability to pay, more than $200,000. Think about that. He created a habit of giving. Every time he got paid, he gave. That's pretty inspiring. I'm challenged to my core by that. Because what else you will find out about Albert is that he was willing to get up at about 3.30 to take two buses to get to work so that he could be there by just after 7. And what else you'll find out is that he only earned about $600,000 in his career. So he gave about a third of his income. Because he just decided, I'm going to make a choice. And choices over time create habits. And I want to give to help other people. And there's an interesting biblical reference to generosity in Acts. Acts 10 specifically speaks of the centurion named Cornelius. And here's what the scripture says in Acts 10 verses 1 and 2. It says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. Some translations say regiment. It says he was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the people and prayed to God continually. I've thought a little bit about my epitaph, and I think, man, what's said about Cornelius there wouldn't be bad to have written about me. Devout. All that means is committed and singularly focused. He was zeroed in on what he believed. Feared God. That's a pretty good thing to think about because the Scripture says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And I want to be a wise man. 
I want to make wise choices. Cornelius feared God. It says he prayed continually. Think about what Scripture tells us about praying. Lots in the Scripture about praying. In fact, in a parable, we're told that a woman bugged a judge so much that the judge finally caved and gave her what she was asking for. And that's how God says he wants us to petition him. It says, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Cornelius prayed continually. But then look and see what it says. It says he gave many alms. Well, in the system of that day, alms were just generous offerings toward the needy. Some translations say he gave generously. Here's why I think that's important for us to pay attention to. Because it, in my opinion, illustrates a habit Cornelius had. What Cornelius chose was to give over and over and over and over again. Otherwise, the scripture wouldn't say he gave many alms. Cornelius cultivated a habit of giving, the same way Albert Lexi has a habit of giving. Think about the centurion. Think about Cornelius as a soldier, as a military officer in charge of a hundred men. You know he had good habits. You know he created good habits to ensure that he is a centurion and his men who followed him were going to do their job because their lives depended on it. And so I just think to myself about how he made sure his armor worked. He made sure his weapons were prepared for warfare. His dagger, his sword were sharp, his spear was sharp. I assume his chariot needed to run smoothly. Just like all those habits, he had developed a habit of giving. The scripture says he gave generously. He gave many alms. Some of you have heard me before talk about my friend Orville Rogers. If you've never heard about Orville, Orville, Orville is an amazing man. He's kind of like Albert Lexi. Orville's 98 now. For 77 years, since he was 21, he's been giving regularly. When he was 21 and he got married to his wife, who's now gone to be with the Lord, Esther Beth, they decided that they would tithe, that they would give 10% of every paycheck he got. Orville loves creating good habits. He's read the Bible 52 times. You think about our message a few weeks ago on memorizing Scripture and how much Scripture you've memorized when you've read the Word 52 times. When you hang around Orville, it just comes out of him. Orville's story gets a little crazy, though. And for those of you who've heard me talk about it, you'll recall that he's given about 25 times his life earnings. That doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But here's the deal. It didn't start that way. It started at 21 when he and Esther Beth made a decision to create the habit of giving in their life. They wanted the habit of generosity to characterize who they were. And so he got paid every other Friday as an airline pilot. And every time that check came in, they gave 10% that following Sunday. Every single time he got paid for 31 years as an airline pilot. And in that 31 years, they were convicted that they weren't giving generously. They actually heard a gentleman by the name of R.G. Letourneau, speak one time. Twice in his four, first four years on the job, he was furloughed. And Orville would tell you they had choices to make during those times. 
In fact, let me quote for you what he said. He said, I called him last night because I wanted to get this right. I was a little scared at 98 he might not answer. But here's what Orville said. He said, we had choices to make. We wanted our habit of giving to rule the day, not our circumstances. We wanted our habit of giving to rule the day, not our circumstances. He said, we grew up in a church where it was clearly stated God was entitled to 10% of our gross income. Those couple times he was furloughed, they had choices to make, he said this, we knew this, our financial future was built on the promise God would sustain us. Well, R.G. Letourneau challenged them and he said, you know what, instead of thinking about the tithe, I'd like for you to think about the fact God owns it all. And they said to themselves, if God owns it all, then why wouldn't we offer back to God everything we have? He gave it all to us. And so they committed to try to do what R.G. Letourneau had done. And R.G. Letourneau had given 90% and lived on 10%. Man, I think about Kenny and what he shared, and I think about the idea that because of Kenny's generosity, if God were to evaluate our church, he might say, that's the most generous church on earth. I think, what if we rallied around the idea that God owns it all, and we're going to offer back to him everything we have and are, Think of the stories that will come from our lives in a year, 10 years, 50 years from now. 25 times his life earnings is Orville's story, and it started 77 years ago by saying, when I get paid, I'm going to give 10%. As I've looked at Orville, and I've looked at people like Albert Lexi, and I've read the scriptures about Cornelius here are a few things that I've seen that are kind of practical realities. Orville was committed to an idea. God would sustain their financial future. God would provide for their needs. And because of that, God is trustworthy. And on Friday, they got paid. And on Sunday, they gave. And so the habit of giving for them was every two weeks, they gave 10% of what he got paid. Literally on Sunday, they wrote a check and gave it. A couple of my friends have challenged me with a thought that's become a habit for them. They have a tendency to buy what they want. Susan and I have a 17-year-old daughter and a 15-year-old son, and like Kenny, there have been a couple times when I was like, go talk to your small group leader. <laughs> and usually that fixed the problem, thank God. But here's the deal. They oftentimes want to argue with me about the difference between a, a want and a need. And it seems like for them, the line is blurred. What we know is this, we want to meet our wants. But what God promises is he'll meet our needs. And so, a couple of my friends have said that instead of satisfying their wants, whenever they have that thing they want and they're going to go buy it, They've decided that they're going to look for someone who has a need and meet that need before they meet their want. Or they're going to make a gift to a ministry they know has a need before they're going to go satisfy their want. And that has become a habit for them. It's pretty convicting and challenging for me because I love meeting my wants. 
A couple of my friends have been so as intentional as to do this. They've actually let somebody review their checkbook each month. That ensures that they have their priorities right around money. And so here's what has come from that. They give first, they save second, and they spend third. I'm not sure I want anybody looking at my checkbook. In this day of electronic transfers and debits, a few of my friends have done this, and I love this idea, and it's worked for us. We've applied it. But they actually get their paycheck routed to two different accounts. And so they have their giving account, and they have their living account. And that ensures for them they're developing and creating a habit of giving. And by making choices over and over and over again to allow that money to distribute to their giving account, they're becoming more and more and more generous. It's interesting when you study giving, you'll find there's some science behind it. There's actually a gentleman at, the, at, at Notre Dame named Christian Smith. He's a professor and a sociologist there. And, and I was pretty baffled by what I read on him. But somebody gave him $5 million to study the science of giving. The John Templeton Foundation made a grant to his program, the Science of Generosity Initiative at Notre Dame, of $5 million bucks so that he could conclude... Our brains are designed to be generous. Following that up, recently, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Jordan Grafman at the National Institute of Health said this, research using MRI scanning to measure blood flow in the different parts of our brain has helped us to monitor people as they make financial decisions specifically giving to worthwhile organizations. What we noticed is there is a marked increase in activity in the midbrain area, the area of the brain that lights up when we are engaged in something we enjoy. The scripture says we should experience the joy of giving. It should be fun. And the science proves the scripture right. Our brains light up when we give. He says, this translates into our experiencing joy and pleasure. This is the pleasure station of the brain. We should be having fun giving. Without much argument, my guess is we would all say most of the habits we develop are developed around things that make us feel good. When I'm eating Doritos instead of popcorn, it's because I like Doritos more than popcorn. And so I'm eating them, and it may be midnight, and I'm not sure why my wife is telling me that they're not a good habit. But the reality is that most of what we do makes us feel good. I, I don't do all that much over and over and over and over again that hurts me or that makes me feel bad. That, that doesn't make sense. Now, we do do some things, bad habits, that make us feel good, or at least we're deceived into thinking they make us feel good. But by and large, we're choosing to do things oftentimes over and over and over again because they're fun, they're enjoyable, they feel good. And that's the reality of giving. God wants us to experience 
the fun and the adventure and the joy of giving. Our church is an illustration of people having a hilarious time over the last few years giving. You don't explain the Passion City Church story without understanding people have had a lot of joy and fun giving. And as we move toward Cumberland and other things like that, what we know is we're going to have a lot more fun giving. Aaron spoke last week about the idea that peace ought to be easier to come by. But what we know is we have an opponent, we have an enemy, we have an opposition And here's the reality. I believe that opponent, that enemy, is the same enemy that thwarts our generosity and our creating a habit of giving that thwarts our experiencing peace. Beyond the science of giving, beyond the invitation God offers us to experience the joy of giving, what we know is that the enemy doesn't want us to be generous. He wants us to be stingy. He doesn't want us to be selfless. He wants us to be selfish. He wants us to be fearful and anxious. He doesn't want us to experience peace. He doesn't want us to experience the joy of giving. What the world tells us is that we need to hold back to make sure we have enough. And yet what the scripture speaks to is the opposite. Isn't God oftentimes the God of the opposites? What we know is with man, things can be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And in Proverbs, the scripture says in the message translation that the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller, but the world of the generous gets larger and larger. Think about that. The world tells us to hold back so we will have enough, and yet God says your world will get bigger if you give liberally. What I believe our generosity does is it makes our world bigger. The habit of giving opens our lives up for a large, large world. What we know is God is redeeming the nations of the earth. Revelation 7 talks about that day when every tribe, nation, tongue, and people will be at the throne of the Lamb. And God has called us to himself that we may declare his praises the one who calls us out of darkness into his light and invited us into his great big story. And he wants us to be used as a team to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's a big, large world. Susan and I have a dear friend named Susanna. Susanna recounts a story oftentimes when talking about our giving. Susanna's the mom now of four daughters, one with special needs. She's a wife incredible wife and mom. She loves being a wife and a mom. But there are days when the hours and hours and hours and hours and hours have added up, carpool, sippy cups, soccer, piano lessons, hair bows, diapers, the mundane tasks of life cause her to just kind of droop her head and her world feels really small. She says it feels about the size of a minivan. And here's what Susanna says. A few years ago, we were invited to become a part of the work of Bible translation and getting the nations, the scripture, in their heart language. What God did was he lifted our eyes up. 
What God did was he made our world larger. He lifted our eyes to see the work of the gospel. Here's what Susanna says, and I quote, You see, our giving made our world larger. As we head out here in a few minutes, I want to challenge us to think about a few things. I want us to, cha- to be challenged to create a habit of giving in our lives, to create a habit of generosity. What would it look like this week, these next seven days, if we chose intentionally to give? Maybe it's buying your friend a cup of coffee. Maybe it's paying for somebody's groceries. Maybe it's making a gift to a ministry. Maybe it's letting somebody cut in front of you in the checkout line because you can tell they're in a hurry. But what would it look like to intentionally cultivate a habit of giving in our lives? And as a result of those choices we would make that would create that habit, why don't we be thinking about experiencing the joy of giving? God wants us not to be anxious or fearful or worry about the future, but rather, like Orville said, to believe that God will sustain our needs, He will meet our needs. Our financial future is tied to Him being faithful. We should have joy in our giving because we have a God who has all He needs to do all He wants to do. What would it look like to consider the impact of our giving? To think of the way our giving is generating impact. I can promise you in 1981 when Albert Lexi started Shining Shoes, he wasn't thinking about giving $200,000 to Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. But what would it think about what, what what would it look like for us this week if we thought intentionally about the impact that will be created by our giving? Grant Partrick months and months ago said when he was talking about giving that it's like our giving is paving roads people can walk down to meet Jesus. What would it look like to see the impact from our giving? And then How about the idea that we'd be seeing our world get larger and larger and larger because of our giving? I believe with all my heart, the more generous we are, the bigger our world is. The more God gives us eyes to see the world. Orville, 77 years ago, decided to give faithfully 10%. But if you know Orville's story, what you end up realizing is he gave 25 times his life earnings because when he was faithful with little, God entrusted him with more. And that's Orville's quote. Over time, it's like God gave us a lot. He just trusted us with a lot. As I close, I want to say one more thing, and that is that we live in a broken world. We don't have to have me tell us that. We can turn on the TV or listen to the radio or look at our phone. I saw where seven people, I think, were killed this morning in Michigan by a random gunman. I believe that our generosity is the great apologetic of today. I believe our generosity, our habit of giving, puts us in a position where people will say, what in the world makes you tick? There's something about you that I don't understand. And it gives us an opportunity to share our faith. Paul says we're to share our lives in the gospel, and I really believe that the habit of giving in our lives puts us in a position to share the gospel. So the same way 
that Michael Jordan practiced shot after shot after shot didn't make him perfect. He missed shots. But it made him excellent. And the same way that Dr. Erickson speaks of these musicians who practiced for hours and hours and hours. Didn't make him perfect, but it made him excellent. The same way I kicked 400,000 footballs for 12 or 13,000 hours. Didn't make me perfect, trust me, I missed some kicks, but it made me excellent. God wants to make us excellent givers. And the scripture says in 2 Corinthians, we can excel in the grace of giving. It reflects the heart of God. Extravagant generosity reflects the heart of God. And so as a church, our prayer is that we would become a stunningly generous church. That's what we believe for our church. You know, some of you here today maybe feel like you've been kind of in bondage to materialism. You feel like you've been just like clamped down by the weight of stuff or that whole idea of holding back so you have enough, you realize is a lie from the enemy. And maybe today the thing that God's really speaking to you about is just being free of that, kind of opening your hands and trusting the Lord with your future, with your financial future. Like Orville said, God would sustain our financial future. Some of you maybe are thinking, man, this whole idea of the gospel being generosity, the essence of the gospel being generosity, the work of the cross, Jesus on the cross being the greatest act of giving ever. Maybe for you, this is a, is a day where you're saying, man, I've been trying to run my life and it doesn't work. I think it's time for God to lead and me to follow. And you want to trust Christ. You've finally kind of had the gospel make sense to you. And you see the gift that God gave in his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Never perish, but have eternal life.